Hi everyone. Happy Mother's Day to the mothers in the building. We celebrate you. Um, thank you for bringing us to life. And uh, should I also say Happy Father's Day? <laughs> it, it, probably when time comes. My name is Joel Binsga and I come from Uganda, in the eastern part of Africa. Um, I was born on the 29th of October, 1994, so I am 24 years old. I, I had an opportunity last year. I turned 24 when I was in the States, so I am on my second trip here. Um, for the very first time, I celebrated my birthday. Oh, all the people around me celebrated my my birthday, and it was so much fun. Ate a lot of cake. Oh, it was so amazing. And that was in New England with my friends the other side. I am so extremely honored to stand before you today. I am extremely overjoyed to have an opportunity to be here today and to speak to you. Um, I've been ha having um, an interaction with Larry on a weekly basis here and there through Zoom and Messenger, and he has been telling me many things about Joyland Church. And I'm happy to have an opportunity to meet you in person and, you know, to speak to you today. Um, I'll tell you a, a little bit of my story, and then I'll try to connect it with what the video is talking about. And uh, I'll also... Uh, tell you a few things about Uganda and also explain why I'm here. And then I'll allow people to ask me questions. Um, don't make them very hard. <laughs> but, but, I'm, but I'm willing to answer questions. So, uh, I was born in a small village um, called Budondo. So I was born to a family of a gentleman who was very loyal to alcohol, very abusive, who used to fight with my mother every single day of their life. And he used to beat up our mother so, so much. And uh, we could see our mother cry. We could see all this kind of pain and agony that she went through. When I was around six years, five Turning six, my, my father passed away. Um, and when he passed away in Africa, uh, we still have a lot of challenges to do with culture. So my mother was not officially wedded to my father. And the family, my father's family, turned against my mother and us. So they sold off our property that our father had left behind and uh, pushed us out of the house with our mother. Of course, I had my older brother. I, he was around, um, he was around, he's two years older than me. So if I was six, he was around eight. And uh, my youngest sister, who was around four, and then my mother was pregnant by that time. So we left for the city, my mother got us. We left on this dreadful day for the city. We had nothing to do because we had an option to choose between death and life, and we chose life. So we moved to the city, and we went to this big slum. 
um, where our, my mother rented a small room in this country. It's called an apartment. In Uganda, it's not. It was not an. It's just a single room, like fifteen, maybe to twenty square feet, something like that. So, and we stayed there. So I remember uh, after a few months, um, our, my mother gave birth to our youngest, you know, brother. Uh, my mother, for, for to be able to, you know, survive and to provide to us, she, she, she started running a small business, and this was a small bar, and she was selling cheap alcohol, you know, to people. But because she didn't have enough money for the license and stuff like that, the government or the authorities kind of clamped down on her business and, you know, everything was confiscated. And uh, we had nothing left to do. So my, we used to see a lot of men come into our house in the night. And my mother used to last those our uncles. Because we were young, we didn't know. It's until we grew up. And my when I turned 11, uh, my mother passed away too. So father passed away, my mother passed away, and she had caught contracted HIV AIDS and she died. And when we were growing up, that's when we knew our mother was sleeping around with men, you know, to be able to take care of us. Uh, so life started on a very rocky end. Um, my mother passed away. She had paid like three months up front for rent for us to use this house. And after like a month, of course, in her absence, we were pushed out of the house. So my brother and I and my little sister of uh, and the youngest brother, you know, who also passed away a few months after our mother passed away because he was born with HIV AIDS and his immunity was already compromised and we didn't have good care for him in the absence of our mother. So my sister and I and my older brother hit the streets. It was the only home for us at that moment. So we stayed on the streets uh, for months and months. And our sister, because life on the streets was very hard and we, a lot of stuff happened on the streets from human trafficking to violence, drug abuse and that kind of stuff. So we, my elder brother is a very creative guy. He told us to, hey, but if we go to the market and do little work for people and probably we can find something to eat. So we went to this one market and we used to do that to get something to eat. And in the night, we would sleep on verandas. We would sleep in, you know, wherever we found shed, we would sleep. So we, there's a certain lady who we talked to about the possibility of taking in our little sister so she can help babysit her daughter as a way so she can get some shelter and some food because she was a girl. We were boys. So we kind of thought it was very dangerous for her to be with us all the time because for us we were boys and we could kind of hustle it out. So uh, by God's grace, this lady accepted our sister to move in with her and she was babysitting for her. So she had a roof over her head and a plate of food. Me and my brother remained on the street because uh, we had to, to think about, you know, how to survive. This was not thinking about the future. This was thinking about how to go through a day by day. Uh, what happened is on the streets, we used to watch our friends, the other kids we found on the streets, disappear every night. 
you know, kids will disappear and then you find after two weeks you wake up and the body on, on a, for, you see a body of someone was dumped in the rubbish pit with organs taken and stuff like that. So it was always a, a, a struggle to go through the day. You would be worried of hunger in the day and also worried of being trafficked in the night or you are worried of the drug deals that happen on the streets and the, you know, the kind of reaction that it faces. So after like seven months on the streets, um, there, is, there was this very uh, big open air evangelism crusade that was advertised all over the city and so many people turned up. So we also turned up. My brother told me, hey, there's a gospel crusade that is going through the week. That's a good avenue for us to have free food through the whole week. So we should go there. And the only thing we have to do is to get saved every time they ask for people who want to give their lives to Christ. So it was a good tactic. It worked. We went <laughs> to the gospel crusade. And every time they asked for people to give their lives to Christ, we were always the first on the line. So we always had our names written. And whoever gave their lives to Christ qualified for soda and a plate of food. So this week was never a bad week. So because every day we gave our lives to Christ. So there's a certain gentleman who used to notice. But you know, this was a Christian gathering, so they would not push us away. So we didn't know these guys were not very serious. They didn't tell us this is just a one-week thing. We thought it was going to go on and on and on and on. So we, ca- we had kind of camped close to the gospel ground so that we can easily access the food and the other things. So on, on Sunday, the crusade finally came to an end. And they prayed for people and they said, thank you for giving your lives to Christ. You can now look for the nearby church. And then uh, people went their ways and we stayed on the ground. So a certain gentleman asked us, hey, why are you guys not going back home? It's getting late. And we told him we don't have anywhere to go. Uh, the streets are our home. We thought you guys are going to be here for like a month. But if you guys are going today or tomorrow, allow us to just stay here and then tomorrow we can think about where we can go because it was indeed late. So this gentleman, who was one of the guys that had organized the crusade, was very empathetic. He got us, me and my brother, and took us to his house. So we stayed in his house for like, I think two months, if not three. And uh, in the first month, we did not tell him we had a sister. But in the second month, he was a very good guy, so we had developed a relationship. We, ca- we finally told him, hey, we have a sister who is staying somewhere. And we went there and brought our sister with us. So the three of us were living at this place. Now, to take you a little back, uh, briefly behind, um, my father had a brother who I called my uncle. Um, he is a reverend, and by the time my father passed on, and by the time all this chaos happened, he was in South Africa, and he had gone to study, uh, for further study in his, you know, kind of ministry life. So he did not know about my father's death until he returned to the country, because the communication was rocky by then. So uh when he came back, he heard of the stories of our father passing and our mother finally passing and the kids being on the streets. So he put the adverts all over the radio and TV trying to trace our whereabouts. So by God's grace, uh this guy who was keeping us had 
that there's someone who was looking for us because our pictures were all over the TV and radio and newspaper. So he took us to police and reported and said, hey, I picked up these guys like two months ago and I've been keeping them at my house and I had someone who's looking for them. And if he's indeed their true relative, I am willing to hand them over. So that's how the connection happened and we were handed over to our uncle. Uh, he has been a very good guy. No, nothing less than showing us too much love. He loved us so much, just like his own kids. He never, he never, he doesn't have a, a child, but he has a wife, but you know, they don't have children, biological children. So when he finally got us, he took us to his home. So we joined a very big family of over 45 children. So I grew up in a family of 45 children. Because my uncle didn't have his biological children, so he decided to bring in children who were homeless so he could take good care of them. So when we came, we were just an addition to already the kids that we found in his house. So we bumped into this big family of 45 children. Uh, by God's grace, he treated us he as just his own. He took us back to school. I was in grade 6 by then. My sister was, I think, around grade Four and my elder brother was in grade seven. Uh, I was, I thank God because I was able to perform so well in my grade seven. You know, in, in Uganda, we have what we call primary school, secondary school, and then university. Uh, so I think primary school is your grade one to grade seven, and then secondary school is your grade eight through grade twelve. So, and then uh, university is, so of course, college. You know, I'm, I'm kind of showing you the equivalent of that. So, uh, in our grade 7, we sit for a national examination. It's, it's a national kind of examination. And by God's grace, I performed well, and I won myself a scholarship to go to a good school and do my further studies. So, I went to the best school in the country. I had good education there. And I also had another scholarship to go for university. And I did my university and graduated with a bachelor's degree in business administration. And life has not been how it was ever since then. So that's part of my story. Now, while at the university, or even while I was in school, in high school, the, the memories of being on the street eating from the rubbish pits, being beaten up when you've done nothing, raining on you and shining on you the whole day. Those memories have never departed from me. They still resonate with me. They still sound in my ears. They still sound in my head just like they happened yesterday. So these memories, together, and when I was in high school, I gave my life to Christ. So my convictions and these memories, my background, you know, birthed this great desire to be able to use whatever I had within me to make sure that I can help as many kids as I could, those I was with on the streets, but also those that are robbed of their destinies simply because their mother or father has passed on. So that desire was birthed within me. And in my first year at the university, I, in Africa, um, or in Uganda, the poverty and uh, 
very hard situations around, you know, kind of shape you. They shape the way you reason. They shape the way you look at things. And you kind of either break down or you break through. You know, you, you, it's, it's, it's either way. You either break down completely or you break through, you know, if God intervenes. So this desire was birthed within me. And when I got to college, I... Still, I was in the Christian Union. Now, the Christian Union is a fellowship of all Christian students in the universities. So I was, I was a leader there. And we used to do missions. And funny enough, even we used to go for missions to preach the gospel. And we would come across the same kids who were in the same situation I was the same time I came to this gospel crusade. So it was kind of taking me back here and there. Every time we went for missions, to preach the you know gospel and stuff like that, we would come across homeless kids who are going through exactly the same kind of lifestyle or the same kind of things I went through. So the desire kept building, and that's when I started interesting some of the colleagues I was with and just tell them, "Hey guys, we have a country that." So some of you who don't know Uganda, Uganda got its independence in 1962 from Britain. However, we have not had any peaceful transition of power in Uganda. Every time we have a president come through, it's about, it's war, it's bloodshed. And we've had so far 11 presidents. And all those generations, many people have died. Millions of people have died. And right now, we have a president who has been in power for the last 33 years. You know, and last year he's just changed the constitution so he can stand again for the next five or whatever years. So he kind of changes the constitution to suit his needs and he uses the military to run the country. And, you know, it's just funny that every voice of dissent is suppressed and is faced with these weapons of repression and stuff like that. So that's Uganda. Now, we have so many young people that have gone to school, they're educated, but they can't even find jobs. The kind of education itself that people re- receive in Uganda, you have to be motiv- pers- personally motivated to take an extra meal and learn more things, you know, if you're going to be able to live in this world today, in this global community, because the kind of education we have is full of far-fetched theories that are not practical anywhere, not applicable anywhere. Now, I'm speaking about a very rich country that has the most fertile soil ever. I'm speaking about a country that has beautiful, you saw the map, the drainage. I'm speaking about a country that is rich in culture, that has a lot of minerals, but all these have been plundered by corrupt guys in government and sold it to China and, you know, kind of stuff. And the people are extremely poor. But of course, it's not a surprise for a person who wants to live in power until he dies. The first thing you want to do is to make sure your people are not empowered. No dictator wants to prevail over rich people because, you know, those guys will not give him allegiance. So it is intentional for people to be poor such that they can dance to the tune of the dictator. All systems are compromised apart from the person of the president himself. All the authority in the country is in one office of the president. No any other minister is functional whatsoever. Back to the story. When I was in university first year, the desire to help many kids that had a life 
style or a background like mine was very tense and uh, irresistible. So I started interesting my fellow students and telling them, hey, if we finish university, we are going to graduate. Now there are two things. We are going to join a group of very many other people that have graduated before and they don't have jobs and they're on the streets in Kampala. Some are in drugs. Some have become robbers. Some have become anything because they have to survive. Because we're in a country that doesn't work for its people, we have a system that doesn't work for anyone. You know? Or we have an opportunity to go back to our communities where we came from. For sure, our communities have so many challenges and that's why they have invested so much in us that we should come here, get this knowledge, get these skills, but we instead disappoint them. We want to stay in the city. No one wants to go back to the village because it's very hard to live there. However, these guys invest in us with hope that we'll go back and change our communities. So I used to interest young people. Tell them, hey guys, how about when we are done with the school, we all go back to our communities, and we we may not have money to give out, but we have skills, we may have challenges to address, we may have a voice to speak up to these injustices, we may have, you know, many things to do there with this kind of knowledge that we have been able to acquire f- from school. So a group of people believed in me, of course, so we, we started doing that. And uh, we, but towards the end of our university time, we also knew that we come from different parts of the country. And we knew after graduation, each one of us is going to take a very different direction. However, we wanted to remain together. So we thought of, you know, uh, legitimizing our ideas and forming something that could keep us together. So the first thought was to register as a company limited by guarantee because we didn't have money to have shares, but guarantee of goodwill where people would come together for a certain cause. So that's how we first started. You know, we first started as a company limited by guarantee, but, you know, and we take away, we knew this would bring us together, even when we have graduated. So we went back to our communities and uh, we started thinking of how we could be of help. Of course, when you are coming from university, you think you know too much. You think you're going to do this, put this together, and then you have these results. However, it's not like that we had to have a relationship with these communities because person, a person like me, all these years in school, I was living in the city and I was completely insulated from the realities that happen in the villages. I knew those that happen in urban communities. So we had to take time to reconcile ourselves to the status quo in the communities, getting to learn the people, getting to learn some of the challenges and to know why some things have failed to change, you know such that we could be in the better position to give long-lasting solutions, not just reacting and throwing our energy or resources on each and every problem that we came across. So we decided to go back to the village. So many people went different directions. Some went with me to my village, of course. We needed somewhere to start. I had already convinced my uncle, who I called my father. I had already convinced him and he had allowed me to use his property, you know, for our work. So young people came with me. We settled in the community. We started by giving our services to the people in the community. I am, I did a bachelor's in business administration and I majored in accounting and auditing. So we, we realized many people start businesses in the community, but they never see 
they never go through the year, you know, because they don't have this business knowledge. So we started by that, helping people uh, keep business records, you know, different disciplines that we had learned. We looked how we can apply those, and that helped us to build a strong relationship with the community and understand the community more, to understand all these challenges these people were going through, to also know what we can manage or what we can handle at what time and what can be done when we have what, you know, to understand the whole situation. So we went back, and since then we've been, we went ahead and enrolled as an NGO, which is an government organization, later, and we became a fully-fledged non-profit and we are Hope for African Child Foundation. We are a team of young people working in Uganda, in Ginger, and we are focusing on children at risk, just as I was a few years ago. You know, children, when I say children at risk, I'm talking about orphans, I'm talking about children from poverty, completely poverty-stricken homes, and I'm speaking about children on the, children on the streets. So those are the kind of people that we are focusing on. Because we know that the future of any country lies within the young people, the young children. Larry just told us the median age is 15. Now you would wonder why would the median age be 15? Between the 1970s and the early 2000s, many people died because of HIV AIDS. In Uganda today we have a lot of missing generations. To have a person in your family who is 80 years old is a very great blessing. You thank God for that because many people died. When AIDS came to Uganda, first time in Uganda, people didn't have knowledge about what was going on. Some thought it was witchcraft. Some called it curses. Some named it many things. So whoever was infected with the virus, and the reason why we were kicked out of our family and our property sold is because my father didn't die of alcohol, actually died of HIV AIDS. And my family thought that my mother was cursed, and for the same reason, the curse extended to their, to their son, and that's why he died. So they also pushed us away in a way that they were pushing away the curse away from the family. So they looked us at us as children from a caste woman, so they were also looked at as curses and forced out of the family. So people looked at HIV AIDS as a curse, looked at AIDS in that with those kind of lenses. And so many people died out of ignorance. And there was no medication by that time. If it was, it was extremely very, very expensive. Great thanks to the people of this country that support the Minister of Health in Uganda. And they have been able to subsidize uh, the costs of the ARVs, the, you know, the medications they give to people with the virus and the death has completely gone down and people are now, you know, starting to live. And it's because of the taxes that you people pay that our people are, you know, are not dying the way they were dying. So we have so many missing generations. To find someone with 70 years old, 60, 50 in your family is such a great blessing. So the, the, the majority of Ugandans, or 75% of Ugandans, you know, of the population in around 35 years old, 30, 20s, we are all millennials, almost. So that explains why the median age is 15. And that also explains why we picked the interest in focusing on the children, because we knew if we are going to rebuild this country again, if we are going to build values, because one, you have a dictator, a government that has been here for 33 years, 
with its dictatorship has come all sorts of moral degeneration. The few old people who would look up to for wisdom and guidance, we see them in broad daylight plundering resources that are supposed to build our nation. Therefore, you have no hope in people like those. You know, uh, so, uh, besides the political question and the governance question, all the other institutions have been compromised from the church to all other, you know, other institutions. However, that doesn't stop us in to do something, you know, to kind of build our country because we now live in a global community and over the internet we see how the young people in a country like this one are prospering, are working hard. We see what is happening outside Uganda and that does not allow us to settle for cheap. That actually provokes us to, you know, to, to, to scratch our heads to think about what can be done. So, we believe in education. If it was not education, I would not be here. Even when I would have a chance to come here, I would not be able to talk to you. Uganda is a country rich in culture, so many different tribes, so many different languages. We use English as our official language, and you can only learn English if you go to school. So the reason I believe in education is because because of education, I'm able to communicate with you in my not-so-good English, but also... Uh, I'm also able to, to, to be able to, you know, to travel and, you know, be able to meet you and have the confidence to talk to you. So the reason why we believe in education, in that video you saw, um, when we first went to Ginger, our desire was never to start a new school or to start something new. We thought that probably we can work with the government and help them address the things they have failed because we have public education in Uganda that is free. However, it is better to have your child not go to school than go to a public school in a country like Uganda. Because you have a population of over 3,000 kids going to one school that has only 50 seats in a class and over 50 children are sitting down and they have less than 20 teachers. So you have a ratio of over 300 teachers per, per you know, one teacher, 300 kids. So there's no education that is going on over there. So... We didn't want to start a new school. That was never on our agenda. Our plan was to partner with the, with the government. Uh, however, the government doesn't have goodwill for progress or development. And it was of recent, last year, this very year in January, the government kicked us out of its public schools. The government is afraid of any person that tries to empower the people. The government is afraid of any young people that gather to discuss about the future of their country. In this country, you people have the freedom to assemble, the freedom to demonstrate, the freedom to walk to White House and you tell Trump you don't like him. That doesn't happen in Uganda. If you walk anywhere close to the state house, you are shot dead. And you don't gather. If you want to gather in Uganda, more than five people gathering in Uganda talk about that country, you must seek permission from the government. So you people have a lot of freedom here and uh, we watch and we pray that one day our country will, will have this kind of, you know, freedom, you know. So um, we didn't want to start a school. We didn't want to start anything new. We wanted to partner with these institutions. But the government has completely thrown us out of these institutions. So in that video, you hear me say we didn't want to, you know, we wanted to work with the government. But as I speak right now, the government is not interested in working with us. So, what are we doing? 
Oh, why am I here? I'm trying to make sure I cut the long story short. I want to be uh, very uh, sensitive to time. We believe in education, like I said. And we believe that if we can put children through school, get them off the street, get them wherever they are, put them through school, give them proper education, not just far-fetched theories. Build them, you know, uh, mentor them. You know, mentorship is a very big thing. I talked about girls getting pregnant at the age of 12 in that video. As a matter of fact, if you want to check on Google, we have the world's youngest grandmother from my village. Uh, in, in 2015, when that article was made, she was 26 years old and she had a daughter who was 13 years old who was a daughter who was one year old. You know, so we have men that are completely out of control because I don't understand what is attractive on a 12-year-old girl that would convince a man to sleep with such a young girl, you know. So we have such instances happening. We have young girls missing over 40% of the academic year because they can't afford Santa reusable Santa pads. You just can't believe something that makes someone a woman is the same thing that is pulling them down. You know? So for us, that has, that is the motivation. Cut, uh, at such things and we only cow down or get discouraged, but we look at those things and get very encouraged. Uh, one day I was asked a question. Why do you do what you do? You know? And I refer to the Bible. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 10, I'll quote, the Bible says that, for we are his workmanship, created in the image of Jesus Christ. Created in Jesus Christ, in the image of Jesus Christ, unto the good works that God had already ordained. The book of the, the Bible goes ahead to affirm what I'm saying in, in Ephesians 1, verses 4, where the, the Bible says that, for he chose us even before the foundations of this world that we may live holy and righteous and blameless before, before him. And the Bible goes on, gives us authority to speak up against injustices, but also not just to speak up, but act on some things. And I personally believe that when you have shifted from good intentions to intentional living, whenever you detect a need that matters to you, you no longer think something must be done. You no longer think something must be done about that. Instead, you think I must do something about that. So when I was at the university, I was, I developed this sense of intentionality and personal responsibility. When I see things, I don't want to just talk about them. I want to act on them. So that sense of intentionality when intentionality meets with a sense of purpose for your life, you don't keep quiet. You talk about these things. So I am here to not simply to show you the negative side of that country. Uganda is a very beautiful country. We may have challenges. Yes, we do. But we also have a very beautiful country. Evergreen, warm. There is no snow in Uganda. It's not a bad thing to have snow. <laughs> but Uganda is a very beautiful country. The people are so loving. The people are so welcoming. Uh, there are some decisions that have been made and we regret. Those are the guys in government. 
But also, there's a lot that we can do together. So I come to your country to be able, one, some of the things I'm talking about, you don't talk about them in Uganda because you would be in prison. So for me to have the liberty to speak about these things, I can only have that freedom when I'm not in Uganda. And I feel happy that I have the opportunity to speak about some of these things and so much more that I cannot exhaust in one hour or you know, 40 minutes. But I'm also here uh, to appeal to the people of this country uh, to be sensitive about Uganda, to pray for Uganda, but also to pick interest to come to Uganda. Regardless of, you see, our, our, the government in Uganda is funny. Whoever threatens their power is the enemy. But if you do anything that is not threatening their power, you are their friend. And people are, the people are caught in the middle. The people are the victims. They have no one to speak for them. Whoever wakes up to speak, personally I've been to prison before over speaking up. I wrote an article that didn't go well with the president sometime back. I, if I forgot to tell you that I had a very big opportunity to work with the parliament of Uganda. And, you know, I got myself a job when I was at the university and I was given a job in the communications office of the speaker of parliament. And I used some of my my people and I published an article that didn't go well with the government and I was speaking about the same things and I found myself in prison. So I had to resign from that job, of course. So I, can, so I resigned from parliament and I'm now doing my work in Jinja. Uh, I'm here. A lot of things are running through my head and I've <laughs> answered this. But I'm here to interest the people of this country. One, to pray for Uganda. We desire that you pray for us every single day. At least mention Uganda in your prayers. Two, those kids in Uganda need you, need us. The need is so overwhelming for a person like me. I cannot do everything. I can afford talking. I cannot afford many other things. However, with a very small contribution, there is such a great impact that you can make, you know. And for me, I agree that you cannot help everyone, but you can always help someone. You are doing something with your life if you can make a world a better place for someone. Not for everyone, but for someone. And as a ministry, we have created a lot of space for new ideas, for new energy. And we are very open to learning we have young people that are committed to learning. We love learning. We love new ideas. We love people to come and work with us. There's so much more we can do together. You know, we, this country is composed of highly educated people. We don't have that in our country. We desire, we admire your country. This country has been here for many, many, many years. And look at, you know, the beautiful country you guys have. We, we desire this. And we know it didn't just come from heaven and fell just like that. There were values, there were principles, there are things that have been done, there are decisions that have been taken. And we want to open up our country to such ideas. We want to know, we want to understand those things that you guys have been able to. And we can't have that if we don't have a partnership with this country. So I am here to appeal to you to, uh, to be alive and sensitive to the things that are happening in Uganda. Partner with us in fulfilling our mission. Our plan 
is to start up a school. Of course, we've been having these kids, as you saw in that video. We have those kids with us from Monday to Friday. Those kids don't go to school. They are all over the community. The only thing we can afford that you saw in that video is to bring them together and talk to them, share with them a scripture or two. But that's not enough. You know, they need to learn a trade. They need to be in school. They need more than just one scripture. I'm not undermining scripture. Not at all. But I believe they desire more than that. So we plan to open up at school and put them through school, give them proper education. You know, those that are on the street, we desire that we give them a home. We give them a roof over their head. I know what it means to be on the street. I understand the pain that side. I know. I know how many times I had to run for my life. I know how many times I had to be accused of doing something that I have not done. I know. And it's painful. The things I'm talking about are very difficult for you to understand. Because probably this country has made a lot of progress and you can never see such. In Uganda, these are realities. And there are even more worse things than what I'm talking about. I'm trying to be respectful to time such that we don't spend the whole day here talking about Uganda. However, Uganda needs your help. The children in Uganda need your help. And if you don't help them, who is going to help them? It took a gentleman to pick us from the street. I don't know what would have happened to me if, we had, if I had stayed there one more week or even one more day. I don't know, you know. But I'm thankful that someone was there to pick me up from the street. I am thankful that a gentleman who never had biological children loved me as his own, took me back to school, gave me a future that I have. By any standards in Uganda, I can I qualify for any good job. My older brother is doing his master's in Nairobi and is, a, is becoming a doctor. My sister is doing her bachelor's degree in medicine and she's in Uganda in her final year. And I'm here very blessed to be in this very blessed country. If it was not those two gentlemen picking me up from the street, putting me back to school and focusing me in the right direction, I, I would not be here today. I would be somewhere else. And injustice to someone or somewhere is injustice to all of us everywhere. So we ask you to pray for that country. We ask you to do whatever you think can be done, you know. So, thank you very much for listening to me. There's one more video that I wanted you guys to watch that has uh, the guys on my team uh, also shared in perspective. Okay. I don't I, know. I, I just want to hear for a second, and, and uh, I want to catch you guys up. Most of you know this story, but I want to set a context here. When we moved down here, um, and when we started investing in all this stuff, uh, I bought this little a graphics card thing, cost 500 bucks. And it just triggered something in me, and I started whining to the Lord. Uh, Lord, is anybody going to care with us trying to go online, do Zoom, and all that kind of stuff? And the Lord's answer to me was, and this was like in November, or uh, no, it was in October, I think. The Lord's answer to me was, Larry, I don't know who's going to watch from around here, but if in the not very distant future, a whole village in Africa gathers around a computer to hear you talk about the goodness of our Father, is that okay with you? And it broke my heart. I started weeping. One month later, I met Joel at a uh, meeting up in Monument 
Well, I was on my way to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. I stopped in. I met this meeting. Uh, it was um, featuring Baxter Kruger, whom both of us appreciate. And he said, uh, hi, I'm Joel. And we talked. And, and Jonathan's the guy who made the contact through there. And, um, and he said, I'm from Uganda. And that immediately triggered something in me. Uh, because when Vicki and I were in Bible school and didn't have two nickels to rub together, we, our first mission involvement was committing $35 a month to Uganda, and it was back while Idi Amin was still eating people and being a, a really horrible dictator. And, uh, <laughs> so that's a bad way to characterize your country, sorry. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, uh, so, so when, when, uh, when I met Joel, and you know how you have a meeting like that, and you say, well, let's stay together, let's stay in touch, and usually that doesn't happen, but Joel was persistent, I was persistent, in that moment, I realized that God wasn't just giving me a good example to try to encourage my heart about buying another TV or something, that he really had a plan. And that plan has very simple, granular things. So we started meeting on Tuesdays with Joel and with his team, and uh, they don't have a big agenda. I teach a little bit of stuff sometime. They share how they're doing. We pray for one another, and uh, we're developing a relationship that led in part to this trip back here. Joel and I spent a lot of time talking on stuff. I wish we had hours and hours for you to get his perspective on politics in our country, to get his perspective on uh, the, the nature of the church. I, you could not possibly, and you guys know what we're wrestling with ourselves to try to understand our theology and how to think about people and how to reach across lines and not categorize and not be dualistic. It was inconceivable to me that I would meet a young 24-year-old guy who had surrounded himself with other young 20-somethings, whose heart would be compatible, theology would be compatible, understanding of who God is and what the Scripture is about, and so on. Um, just, and Joel's going to be here for a while if you get a chance to talk to him. It's amazing. Just Anyway, God's doing something. And the somethings are super simple. So, for instance, uh, with our Trinity U project, we need some animation done. And um, I did some research on Fiverr, or I could think to learn it and do it myself. You guys know that I'm addicted to that sort of busy work. And uh, and so anyhow, uh, Joel has a couple young men uh, on his team, and they're the ones that made this video, to do animation. And they do fantastic animation. And the reality is, if we have a couple hundred bucks uh, in the budget for animation for a couple of pieces, that could actually provide a, a substantial living for, for those two young or one of those young men for a month. So there's just these kind of simple things. So uh, I know that, you know, we're, we're, all of us have been in church at one point or many points in our life, and it seems like uh, there's the need, there's the presentation need, there's the appeal for the money, all this. Yes, for those things. But this is different. This is a, an actual relationship. I made Joel sleep out in the trailer in the snow just to test him. And he's passed in flying colors. And, and so I, I'm, uh, I and others here are planning on making a trip this summer or, or perhaps later in the fall as well. Some others back to Uganda. Um, I'm not going back there to be a big deal. I'm just going back to do what Joel's coming here doing, you know. Uh, the Lord's already opened some doors. Uh, Dave and Kathy Cotton are going to be uh, hosting him so he can meet some people at Bethel. Uh, he and I are going to be sharing a conference with Paul Young and uh, Baxter Kruger and some other people that could be very influential in our lives and very influential in his. Um, one of my goals is to try to personalize uh, our missions giving in such a way that, like, for instance, our Tuesday night study was able to rally around a need to buy food for, and he says it's just kids, but 
they have uh, 20 or 30 elderly people in their 80s that don't have children to take care of them. They feed them. Uh, and I, I'm just so grateful to those of you in the, in the Tuesday night study. We just took one week, raised enough money to cover their food for a month. So there's opportunity like that. And this is going to be a relationship. You're going to see this guy. We're eventually going to tap into some new technology that's going to allow him to holographically stand here and talk to you on a regular basis. Who knows what's going to happen? But I just want you to understand there's a reality to it. So we have time for just a couple of questions. Yeah. All right. So there's something that really shocked me when we were talking yesterday, Joel. And I think that most of us in this room really don't have any perspective on the huge gap that exists. How much do, would an average doctor make in Uganda? Great. Good question. Uh, in Uganda, a doctor earns, a, a specialist, a very highly trained doctor earns 500. And so one reason there's not a lot of doctors in Uganda is even though they have very good training, is uh, uh, they will go to another country where they can make more money. And, and so Joel quickly passed over this part of his life, too. Yes. He, he had a job that in a country where there is this huge class distinction would have set him up working for the Speaker of Parliament in the communication as a 24-year-old or 23-year-old young man. And he realized that he could not give allegiance to that and that paycheck and still go out here. But he still has the relationships. He still has the influence. And so it's a... It's pretty cool. There's another thing that you pointed out, which was the average workers, like somebody who works in a steel mill, would make about $60 a month. Exactly, and less than that sometimes. The people that earn $30 a month, and you wonder, how are they, how do you really expect these people to live? You get? So everyone is living on a survival mode, including those that went to school, got educated, and have jobs. They are living on survival. They, and that's why we have a lot of corruption, because how do you expect someone who is earning $500 and is a highly trained doctor not to try to smuggle the medications and take them to a private facility somewhere and sell them? So we just have a systematic failure. Everything is just off, and we are just building again. We, we believe in ourselves as young people that we have what it takes to build, however, we have not decided to take to choose violence because we are strong. We can push out the president, but we don't want to get guns and kill one another. I mean, we've seen that in many countries. We don't want to do that because the same kinds that move around with the president are young people just like we are. So we don't want to get guns and, you know, we can afford that, but it's very expensive. It's very costly. We have already lost so much that we don't want to take that direction. There must be another question here. You mentioned uh, having a network when you came out of school with other students going back to their own homes. Is that still going on? Do you still connect with them, and how is that working? Yes, that has been my message from for all these years, ever since I left university. I happen to have the privilege to go back and forth to the university to speak to students in these fellowships, and that is always my message. I encourage young people not to settle in the city, not to settle in the comfort. Because when you're in the city, life is comfortable. Where it's not like a city, like a city here, but life is comfortable. But I've always challenged young people to go back to their communities. I have a chance. I speak, I have a weekly program on radio 
uh, in one of the most listened to radios in our area. And in that program, I challenge young people, you know, always not to settle for just a paycheck, but to go back and use whatsoever they have in them to create an impact. And yes, I, I may not be able to tell you how many people have gone back to their communities, but I, I believe I've seen some few do that. I, maybe some others that get get hold of the message do it, and I don't know about it, but yeah, I keep this message keeps going on, and it is what we would want to see in our country. And yes, oh, sorry to cut you off, there are so many young people that are doing something. It should not be seen that it's only me. No, there are so many young people, so many ideas in Uganda. I was talking to uh, Sterling, and he was telling me, what if people have money, they're not willing to give it out, but they're willing to invest it? Yes, Uganda is so ready for investment. We have one of the most booming tourism industry. We have such so much that has not been done in a country like Uganda, and this room for investment, there's room for so much. You may not be led, you may not be convicted towards orphans or street kids or what, but there's still so much that you can do with yourself in a country like Uganda. Thank you very much. Okay, one of the, yeah, one of the, uh, the other things that's beautiful is, is uh, you know, as we've here at Joyland tried to uh, bulldoze down that division between uh, the church only does the church stuff, the secular things, sacred things. Uh, I found in Joel and I found in his team and, and then the foundation, the idea of uh, a fully non-government organization, humanitarian organization, which has the freedom to do all this kind of stuff. So, for instance, they disempower. They, the, the government won't allow them to work in the, in the private schools, but it doesn't object to them at all, having an independent organization. And uh, it's just the weird vagaries of insecure power and um, so there's this humanitarian agency joel has uh muslims uh on his team he has others who i don't know what their their beliefs may be but the ability to work in love and then and to realize that that christ is in those people working out these things uh he has this one young man that i've i've met online uh musa who is a liaison with the community. And he, he just works tirelessly and diligently to make that happen. And he's a Muslim. Amen. He also has former Muslims on his team <laughs> because they saw the love of Christ, right? So this is a full-on ministry. His his uh, uh, adoptive father uh, has been an Anglican pastor, I believe, right, Anglican, for 40 years. And um, uh, so they've got this connection with the church where families in the church are the ones that are taking in these kids off the streets. So it's this beautiful blend like we've been seeking to understand and recognize how God works. So the opportunity for involvement is relational. It's not duty-bound. It's a relationship. And I, I will tell you that uh, if you want to, you can start developing uh, Skype and messenger calls between this young man and, and uh, or between other guys on his team. Uh, I'm going to build a relationship with those young animators. And, uh, you know, I could send it to Fiverr someplace else, or I could invest this way. So this kind of creative thinking is totally wide open. So, And, and Larry, that's exactly what we desire. Uh, we desire to have a relationship with this country, not just on the receiving end, but we also look at, at, at both sides. We, we look at the joy that comes with the knowledge that with a small sacrifice, with a small 30 minutes of time devoted, 
to speaking to this child every week the transformation that comes with that you know we, one of the things that we focus on so much Larry is mentorship because we believe that is where human transformation lies you know and we attack this with a concept which we call discipleship evangelism now africa has been evangelized uganda too has been many people come do crusades lead people to christ and go yes that salvation prayer is a two minute prayer it's amazing many people can say it at convenience however how many are really transformed by just that prayer it takes more than that and it takes more than a young boy who is 24 years trying to figure out who was not eaten food, who needs school fees, who needs what. And that's why I, 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 I seek for relationships with different ministries. Let people, God has gifted us differently. I may not be articulate at teaching most of the things, but maybe I'm gifted at inviting you <laughs> to come and teach things articulately to the people down there. So it's just amazing. And, you know, technology, has brought us together. You just can't imagine without this one hour, two hour meeting with Larry, I would not have an opportunity to speak to you here today. So there's so much we can accomplish over a smartphone, over, you know, Larry was just introducing me to something called Glassflow, where we can share information in just a snap of a finger. So there's such a lot we can do. Now, here's the problem. When people tend to their 50s and 60s, some people in Africa, maybe not here, start thinking that they have done all they need to do and there's nothing more they can do, you know. However, I believe that Sarah was 90 years old when she gave birth to Isaac. I also believe and I, I have really seen so much. And, and, and you see, there's, there's no limitation. Some of these limitations, Larry, are just in our heads. We just create them. But there is no limitations whatsoever to what we can do if we step out to do it, you know. And it's also, it also depends on the lenses with which you're looking at the situation. You know, you may, you may not want to look at yourself as a savior. Jesus already died for all of us, even Africans, and is in heaven, is risen, and we are all saved through him. You don't have to become a Jesus Christ for Africa. You just have a partner. Africa needs partners. You don't have to become a savior. You don't have to carry the whole burden on yourself because right. that's not what God has called us to do. Right. He has only called us to do within our means using that that he has blessed us with. Amen. So I know the need is overwhelming, but we always urge people not to overstretch themselves, but, you know, to do what they think God is telling them to do without having have to, to rob yourself of the freedom Amen. that comes to that. So I, I've got one little thing. Uh, Jeremy, if, if Amy's close by, uh, just have her sticker face back in here. Um, so um, unmute. Uh, Amy, what, what grade do you teach? Hang on a second. Yeah, there you go. What grade do you teach? I teach high school. High school? Okay. So Joel and I were talking about... school, which would be 9th through 12th grade. Okay. So Joel and I were talking about, um, not that, that there's a substitute for going and visiting a country and doing that's why I'm going to go over there. That's why Joel came here. But if we wanted to, and if you had the desire and the time, that's a good-looking shirt. I haven't seen myself on camera before. Uh, if, if we wanted to... <laughs> And had the time, you could put an ongoing class together through Zoom that would serve the kids that Joel is teaching. 
And, it, yep. you know, and all of us that have skills or anything like that, this is what God's doing. It's this amazing thing. And then the treat would be when Joel comes over or he brings one of the kids over or you go over. And, and then, the, like, we're, we have the ability to individually not just sponsor in a compassion-like way one of these children, but to get a relationship going with them. You know, that every, every Monday afternoon or every, something like that, we work the time thing out. It's been a challenge. You just have a conversation with that kid. They know that they're loved. Oh, all of it. Yeah. Any of that kind of stuff. So anyway, that was just something that I was thinking about, uh, a very real way that this could expand. And I, I think in tiny little bites, tiny little steps, tiny little commitments. And I'm even kind of reflecting back on that $35 thing that Vicky and I did when we didn't have any money at all. It, it has opened the door to this, and so it's there. So, Laurel, no, <laughs> you, you need to go to the restroom? No, okay. I want to finish up with some worship, and then we'll close with that video. All right. Do you guys have any questions on Zoom? Anybody? I, I see Robin and Bob on there. Any others, Amy, for you guys? Or Hey, Gene and Robin. All right. All right. God bless. Um so the first thing he, he asked was for us to pray for Uganda. So let's pray for Uganda right now. And then we're going to lead worship. Let the Lord speak to you. And uh, I asked Laurel just to give us an opportunity to let God seal this in our heart a little bit. So, Father, thank you. Thank you that every nation in this earth and every person in that nation is on your heart. And there's room for them there. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us an opportunity to share your heart. And you have overcome our insecurity and fear and self-centeredness and begun to open our eyes to the simplicity and power that we can, that we can carry in these earthen vessels. So Lord, in Jesus' name, we speak light and life and joy and freedom and reconciliation and deliverance over Uganda and the people of Uganda. We pray, Father, for the, the dictator of Uganda, as unlikely as it is, that in his late and protective years, and even those around him, he could be touched by the knowledge of God. I am reminded of one of my uh, go-to biblical people that I want to see when I get to heaven, and that's Nebuchadnezzar, who through the crisis of, of his life came out acknowledging your glory. I pray for that. I pray for space to be made in the hearts and minds of that government for ministries and NGOs like Hope for African Child Foundation. And I pray, Lord, for space to be made in the hearts of those children and the families of that community for us to touch them and to serve them in some way. We thank you for the privilege of it, Lord, and we name Uganda before your throne as a place to receive great outpouring and blessing. Lord, we want to worship you and seek your face.